We left Joseph last week in, in alone in prison, and and we we left him when we left him last week. He the he had told the cupbearer after he interpreted the dream for him and the baker. He had told the cupbearer, "Now that I've told you the meaning of your dream, don't forget me. Keep me in mind when things go well for you and when you get promoted." Please do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh to, to get me out of this place. Remember me. But then we, we remember, if you remember from last week, the cupbearer failed to remember or even mention Joseph. Only, only three days after Joseph had said that, the man was released and he was restored to his former position as the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh. And he promptly forgot about all his days in the dungeon as well as his cellmate Joseph. And two full years passed after that event. That's a long, long time to be forgotten. And we're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 41 of Genesis. And we've got a lot of scripture to read tonight. Um, and, and so let's just jump right in. Genesis 41.1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And, and Pharaoh awoke and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after, the, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. When the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, excuse me, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes. He came in before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable, favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed up the fed uh, in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as, as at the be beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So we'll stop there for a minute. We'll jump back in into the story in a minute. But so um, though 
two full years, those two full years for Joseph, I'm here to tell you they were neither exciting nor eventful. They represented a long, dull, monotonous, slow-moving grind. Month after month after month of nothing happening. And listen, that's what it's like when you're in a period of waiting. Sometimes, how many of you ever had that time of waiting in your life? We're just waiting for God's answer to come and, and, and nothing's happening. It's just wait, 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 wait. Hurry up and wait. That's what it's like. And on the other hand, what we need to understand, though, is it only seems like nothing is happened, but happening. But in reality, there's a, there's a whole lot that's happening. Events are occurring. Uh, outside of your involvement and outside of your knowledge. We, we are being strengthened in those moments. We are being established. We, we are being perfected. We are being refined. And Joseph, during this time, is not just waiting. God is, is shaping him for greatness. I, I like the way Charles Swindoll says it. I, I think he's quite the wordsmith. And he wrote this. He said, all whom God uses greatly are first hidden in the secret of his presence, away from the pride of man. It is there our vision clears. It is there the silt drops from the current of our life and our faith begins to grasp his arm. Abraham waited for the birth of Isaac. Moses didn't lead the Exodus until he was 80. Elijah waited beside the brook. Noah waited 120 years for rain. Paul was hidden away for three years in Arabia. The list doesn't end. God is working while his people are waiting, waiting, waiting. Joseph is being shaped for a significant future. That's what's happening. For the present time, nothing. But for the future, everything. <clears throat> so after two full years, Joseph experienced finally a turning point in his life. On a, on a day, I, want, I think it's important to note that it was on a day that seemed like any other day. That, that morning dawned just like every other morning over the previous two years. Just like Moses, you know, after spending uh, 40 years out on the backside of the desert, uh, seemingly forgotten by God. Nobody knew where he was. He was now, you know, he had these aspirations of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And, and now he's there and he's doing nothing more than a shepherd taking care of sheep for his father-in-law. And, 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 and he did that for 40 years, day after day after day. And, and, and just like that morning that dawned before Moses saw the burning bush, just like the morning that dawned before David was anointed for, by Samuel as the king-elect, it, it was, that was what was taking place for Joseph. It was a day like any other day. And to me, this speaks a lot about faithfulness. Uh, you know, sometimes we get caught up in being success, excuse me, successful. That's what our, our interpretation is. We want to be successful. We want to succeed at something. But God is not nearly concerned with success as he is faithfulness because success belongs to him. You know, what is it, you know, what is it that we all hope to hear when we stand before our, our creator? It's not well done, good and successful servant. What is it? Well done, good and faithful servant. It, it speaks to me about faithfulness, about doing the same thing, taking care of what you need to, need to take care of every day, day after day, when it seems like nothing's changing and maybe it even feels like nothing will ever change. You keep 
going on. It speaks to me of hanging on to the promises of God every single day when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. You wake up every morning, day after day after day, and nothing changes. But here's what we know it, it, as we see it in the life of Joseph. You, one day, you wake up just like any other day, but now suddenly something happens. For Joseph, it was just another dungeon day, except for one little matter that Joseph knew nothing about. Because the night before, Pharaoh had had a bad dream. In his dream, Pharaoh was standing on the banks of the Nile River and saw seven attractive and plump cows feeding on the reed grass. And then seven ugly thin cows came up from the same river and devoured the attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke in that moment. Maybe he thought at that time he was thinking, maybe I shouldn't have had such a big meal before I went to bed. Or, I should have avoided that pizza. I knew that was a bad idea. Whatever, maybe he was thinking it was just, just wasn't sitting well on his stomach. And before long, he fell back asleep, and then the dream came again. In the second dream, he saw a stalk of grain with seven plump, healthy ears. And then seven lean ears, scorched from the east wind, sprouted and devoured the seven healthy ears of grain. And, and when Pharaoh awoke, he remembered and realized that that was a dream. Have you ever, how many of you have ever had that kind of a dream where you wake up and you... You thought it was a real thing, and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, that was just a dream. That's almost the, the sense I get here because it says that Pharaoh woke up and realized it was a dream. But, but after he remembered the dream, he was very much disturbed by it. Now we need to remember, we, we've talked a little bit about this, I, I, don't, I think it was last week, yeah, it would have been last week. Uh, but dreams were considered to be a means of divine direction uh, for Egyptian kings. In their culture, that was one of the important uh, means that pharaohs would use to try to decide what they needed to do. And if you'll recall from last week, they even had dream commentaries to help interpret dreams. You remember we talked about that last week? And so I, I actually found a few of those to share with you. For example, in one of these commentaries, it says, if a man sees himself in a dream seeing a large cat, so he sees himself Looking at a large cat, that's a good omen because it means a large harvest will come to him. Or another one was if a man sees himself in a dream looking at his own face in a mirror, that was bad <laughs> because this one kind of cracks me up because it meant another wife. <laughs> that was, and that was considered a bad omen. Uh, another one was a man, if a man saw himself submerged in the Nile, that was a good omen symbolizing that he had been purified of all evil. However, if you saw a dwarf in your dream, that foretold the tragedy of having your life cut in half. These were the kind of things that they had in their books, and they would try to interpret dreams these, these ways. And it's not surprising at all from these dreams that Pharaoh was disturbed by the dreams, when, especially when you consider the content of the dreams, because these are very disturbing dreams, and the fact that the Nile River was in it was very concerning because uh, Pharaoh's dreams were centered on the Nile River and the Nile River was central to Egyptian life. Archaeologist Catherine Bard writes, the Nile was ancient Egypt's most important natural resource. Within the Nile Valley and the Delta uh, with, with the adjacent, adjacent low deserts, all of the basic resources that sustain human life were available, water, food, and the raw materials for tools, uh, clothing, and shelter. So Egypt 
was fully dependent on the Nile for survival. But more than that, Egypt was dependent on the annual flooding of the Nile for its prosperity. So, so any sign or omen that appeared to threaten the regular inundation of the Nile was very serious, especially for Pharaoh. Because some of the things that we don't know until you begin to read a little bit of history is that Pharaoh was considered as a sort of a godlike guardian of the Nile who was in, co- in cooperation with the god of the Nile whose, whose name was Hopi. Not Hopi, H-O-P-P-Y, but H-A-P-I. And, and, uh, and so Hopi, and I can't figure another way to say it. It just sounds funny to me to say it. But, but it, he was the god of the Nile, or actually more specifically, he was uh, the god of the annual flooding of the Nile uh, Valley, which when that happened, when the flood came, then it deposited fertile soil on the river's banks, allowing the Egyptians to grow very, very fertile cl- crops. And uh, this, this particular god, Hopi, was usually portrayed as a fat old man with a woman's breast that symbolized the fertility of the river. And he also was de- depicted with blue or green skin and had a pot belly. I'm just thinking, I'm just reading that and I'm just thinking to myself, surely you could have come up with a better God than that. You know, <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm thinking of. But, uh, and anyway, he was associated, he's the God of this inundation, the flooding, annual flooding. And when this annual flooding of the Nile would come, that was actually called the arrival of Hopi. So any breakdown in the regularity of the Nile flooding would cause a famine, would cause the crops not to grow, but it would reflect also on the competence of the Pharaoh to maintain their sort of cosmic order because in in their culture, the chief responsibility of the Pharaoh was to maintain what the Egyptians called ma'at or universal harmony in the country. And the Pharaoh was supposed to be an intermediary between the gods and his people. And so the Egyptian goddess ma'at was the ancient Egyptian goddess of of, uh, truth and justice and balance and order. And they believed that she worked her will through Pharaoh, but it was up to the individual ruler to interpret the goddess's will correctly and then to act on it. So it's it's no wonder that Pharaoh was disturbed by his dreams seeing the Nile. And then you have these beautiful, healthy cows being devoured by, as he described them, the worst, most unhealthy cows he had ever seen, worse than anything he'd ever seen in his life in Egypt. And he would have had these dreams, and especially in their culture, he would have understood them as a message from the gods that, that, that fairly obviously boded no good. You can't get a good message from that kind of a dream. But, but the problem was, okay, I see it. I know it's a message, but what's the message? What does this mean? Well, Pharaoh just had to know what the dreams meant. So he does the expected and he calls for his magicians and his wise men. He calls for those trained in dream interpretation. However, they are completely stumped. So apparently the dream books did not refer to anything like the cows or the grain on the Nile. And they didn't have any way to interpret. They had no idea what to say to them. Or I guess it's possible they may have had an idea that this is a bad idea. This is a bad thing that's coming, but they were afraid to tell Pharaoh the truth. That's a possibility too, I guess. But, uh, and there's no question in my mind, Pharaoh was probably getting very unhappy because these advisors are not going to be able, I mean, what, 
he's getting unhappier by the moment because what good is an advisor if they can't advise you at the time when you need them the most? Well, experience has shown us and the experience of the cupbearer and the baker already shown us that it's not a good thing when Pharaoh gets frustrated or upset. So it's not hard to imagine at all that the anxiety felt by Pharaoh was shared by all of those around him. Although they knew as well as Pharaoh that the dreams were some type of omen, that there was some meaning, it was a message, it had to trouble them because for them, not just the, the message, but their futures are, are potentially at stake. Well, at some point in time in this process, our old friend, the cupbearer, learned of Pharaoh's dreams. Finally, after two full years, the cupbearer remembered, remembered Joseph and he, and, and he told he remembered how Joseph had interpreted his dream and interpreted the baker's dream while he was in prison and how those dreams had, his interpretation had come true that he was correct. And so the cupbearer finally told Pharaoh, he was very, he's kind of repentant a little bit. He said, I, I have made a terrible, done a terrible thing. He said, let me tell you about this. And he told uh, uh, Pharaoh about his experience with Joseph. And when Pharaoh heard this, he immediately summoned Joseph from the dungeon to his palace. Pharaoh in essence said, you, you tell me about this Hebrew guy? Pharaoh said, go get the man. What are you standing here talking to me about it? Go get it. Now remember, at this point in time, Joseph knew nothing of any of those things that are taking place in Pharaoh's palace. He doesn't know Pharaoh had a dream. He doesn't know that they're He's trying to get the interpretation. He, had, he has no idea what's coming. He's back there in the dungeon uh, when, when suddenly the chains clanked and the bars moved and the ropes lifted and he found himself being pulled up out of the pit. This is actually kind of an interesting sidelight here. When Pharaoh sent for Joseph, the guards quickly got him out of the dungeon, but instead of rushing into Pharaoh's presence, Joseph, it says, shaved himself and changed his clothes before he went to Pharaoh. Joseph prepared himself to meet the king uh, you know, after all that time in prison, Joseph was certainly disheveled and tattered and no doubt was very heavily bearded. Um, and it was the culture of the Egyptians that men were, were, uh, were normally clean shaven. In fact, they would often shave in their entire body and not have any hair on them at all. And uh, he must have thought to himself, if I'm going to appear before the king, we don't know, maybe those people that went and got him out said, you, you can't, we can't take you in looking like this. We don't know what led to it, but, but, uh, but, but eventually he realized, man, I can't go in there looking like this. I've got to, I've got to do something. I've got, my appearance needs to be appropriate if I'm going to enter his presence. So he shaved and he washed and he changed his clothes and he goes before Pharaoh. Now pause and imagine this long-awaited moment. It had been years since Joseph had been part of the real world. Consider the startling contrast from a dingy dungeon to Pharaoh's palace. The long wait is over. And Joseph, now 30 years of age, stands before the most powerful monarch on earth at the time, the leader of the Egyptian superpower. There he stood, freshly shaven and wearing a clean robe, and the Lord was still with him. Joseph, maybe he sensed that, that something maybe was about to happen that might make sense of his own dreams. 
And Pharaoh said to him, I've, I've had a dream and there's no one that can interpret it. I, I've heard it said that uh, of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph's reply is absolutely just magnificent. He says, it is not me. Which in that moment, Pharaoh's heart, he's not, he said, it is not in me. Pharaoh's heart may have dropped for a second when he heard, no, I can't do that. But then he goes on, he says, but God will give you the answer you need, Pharaoh. Joseph literally, the, the, the words that used there in the original, he literally said, God will give Pharaoh peace. Isn't that great? Uh, Pharaoh will, God will bring shalom to you. He will give you a peaceful answer. Um, and he said, God's going to give you peace over this, Pharaoh. You're going to understand. He's going to give you answers. So Joseph did not claim to be an interpreter of dreams. He never claimed that. He claimed only to know the God who had, who had sent the dreams and that, that that God would explain them to him. Now, I think one of the interesting things to think about in this passage is what then did this polytheistic king, because, you know, Pharaoh believed in, 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 a, in a large number of gods. Joseph is coming from a monotheistic standpoint where he believes that the God of Israel is the one and only God which is what we believe. But, but what did then, upon hearing the Joseph say, God will give you the answer? What, what did he think? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty obvious that, 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 you know, that Pharaoh does not believe. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even know about this God that Joseph is talking about. And, and so it probably really meant very little to him initially, but it was obvious and important to him that, you know, or it was obvious and important to, that he realized that this, was an, this God was unknown in Egypt. He didn't know anything about him. But he also knew that no God in, of Egypt could enable humans to interpret dreams. That was clear already because uh, it was clear from the fact that Pharaoh had an entourage of wise men and magicians and astrologers to guide him. And they professed contact with the gods. But when it came down to it, they had none. They had nothing to offer. Pharaoh, Pharaoh told his, his experts the content of his dream, but they could give no explanation. Again, as I said earlier, apparently the dream books didn't contain any information regarding the symbols in the dream. And so Pharaoh was desperate to know what the dreams meant. And he heard what Joseph said. And so he, he responded to Joseph's assurance that God, whoever, whoever that God might be, could interpret his dreams by relating his dreams to Joseph. And let's read what happens next in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that, that came up after them are seven years and the em seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, also, it, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them <clears throat> there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly, God will shortly bring it about. So 
It's interesting because the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph, there's no record that he went, had to go somewhere and pray about it, but the Lord immediately gave him this interpretation. He was able to interpret the dreams immediately, and he recognizes right from the start that the message comes from God uh, to Pharaoh in order to inform Pharaoh so that he can do what is necessary. And the two dreams have a single message. As, as with the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, the numbers in the dreams are time indicators. And they, these two dreams constituted a message from God there, that there would be seven years of plenty and there'd be followed by seven years of famine. And the fact that God had sent the same message twice signified in Joseph's words that the events foretold by the dreams, the seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, were, quote, fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, we do know that from, from other ancient sources that famine caused by failure of the annual flooding of the Nile, even some historically that lasted seven years, they were not unknown to Egypt. This is something that was very real and it was a very real possibility. But what was very strange here, very unusual, very powerful, was that there had not been one and has not been one since then that was predicted seven years in advance. That was unprecedented. And Pharaoh now, hearing this, he knew that Pharaoh was a, a, a man of a kind that he had never met before. A man whose God had revealed the meaning of the dreams he had sent to the king. Now, and certainly Pharaoh was, was being confronted head on with the existence of a hitherto unknown supernatural dimension. And he may well have wondered how a Hebrew slave and a prison manager could have knowledge that he, this quote, God-like Pharaoh, and all of his top advisors who were the most well-educated men in the world at the time, that he had knowledge that they didn't have. But the message from God was devastating. This, this seven years of famine that's coming, this, in a sense, it constituted an affront on the Egyptian concept of ma'at, this idea of order, which Pharaoh was, was responsible to maintain. But, but also in another sense, uh, what was going to happen could be seen as an, as an attack on the river god Hopi. Which, by the way, if you go to the story of Moses and the children of Israel, all the ten plagues, every one of those plagues lines up directly with one of the gods of Egypt. Where, where God, with the plague, it was a full-on frontal attack on their, their belief system of their polytheistic uh, religion. And, and here... This could be seen as the same type of thing. Uh, and, it would, it, and if this was true, then Hapi could, might be seen to, to no longer be able to supply the needs of the people. And maybe he didn't have the power they thought he did if this God, other God from Joseph's uh, belief, uh, from what he's, the one he's talking about, if he could say, no, there's going to be a famine. Well, it was obvious that, that, that the God that Joseph was talking about was in a completely different category from Hapi. Um, and one can imagine that Pharaoh was horrified, feeling in the, in the grip of, of forces that he could not understand, much less control. But Joseph wasn't finished with his conversation. Because now he's going to answer Pharaoh's unspoken question. The unspoken question is, what do I do? In, in light of this prediction, what do I do? How do I handle this? What do how can we overcome this? Well, read verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. 
Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So Joseph proceeds to advise Pharaoh that he should appoint a wise and discerning leader to collect, the, to collect surplus, surplus food during the seven years of abundant crops, which then would be housed in store cities, not in a central location. I mean, this is the wisdom of Joseph here and the wisdom given by God to Joseph, because if he had gathered it all in a, in a central location, then people from all over Egypt have to come to one spot and, and it's, it's, a, it's an administrative nightmare to do that. So Joseph said, hey, you know, you need to create these storehouses in these different cities. And then when the food is there, when the famine comes, you're going to be in good shape. So Joseph said, you need to, you need to have a man who can take responsibility for managing those seven years of fruitfulness, a man who will oversee the building of granaries and make certain that, the, that a portion of the grain is, is put into storage. And when the famine strikes, and it will strike Pharaoh, but when it strikes and it wipes out all this fertile land because he said it's going to be so bad that nobody's going to even remember the seven good years, he said, then you and your people will be able to live off, live off these rations. Therefore, he said, you need a man of discipline and foresight who can be trusted to handle the job. And he tells them all of this, but I want you to notice something else. Never once did he say, I want the job. Hey, I've interpreted these dreams, Pharaoh. I, I kind of deserve this position. I've been through an awful lot unfairly. I should be able to be able to be part of this. You should reward me for this. He never asked for any. Joseph had run Potiphar's house. He had run the king's prison and clearly learned a lot about practical economics. Yet he did not promote himself. He did not get caught up in selfish ambition. He didn't try to manipulate the situation for his own benefit. All he did was he, he simply did whatever God asked him to do to the best of his ability, and he trusted God with everything after that. My, what a great lesson for us to, to not try to get our hands in and manipulate circumstances, but to do what God says and wait, which we know wait is a four-letter word in our language in, in, you know, not in more than just the sense that it has four letters. We don't like to wait, but sometimes we, ha we have to learn that there's much that God accomplishes in the waiting. So he took his hands off of it. Let's, let's read what happened next. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the, uh, the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And these next few verses actually describe a, a process uh, whereby, and we, we can see it in other uh, historical documents, 
a process whereby Pharaoh would, would, uh, would institute an, uh, uh, someone that he is putting into a great position of great power. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Notice that he didn't give him another ring. He gave him his ring. And his ring was his seal. If there was anything that needed uh, a seal of approval or ha that ring had the, had the, that was like Pharaoh's signature. He gave him his ring. That's a very powerful symbol of authority that he gave to him. He says, um, he says, uh, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, linen and put on a, uh, put a gold chain about his neck. All of these things are symbols of, of Pharaoh's favor on him. It's interesting to note that his problem, some of his problems started with garments and got worse with his, with Pharaoh in Potiphar's house with his garments. And now he put on some clean clothes to come to Pharaoh. And now he's dressed in the finest that the world has. Verse 43, and he made him ride in his second chariot. Again, this is a symbol of authority. Uh, they, would, they would put somebody who's being raised up to a position of authority and they would, they would uh, go through the streets and they'd have somebody walking along shouting out, you know, hey, bow down. This guy is now in charge. He's now got authority. This is on the, and he's in Pharaoh's chariot. So it's all very obvious, this is a very important man. So this is the kind of thing that's going. And they, and they called out before him, bow the knee. This is what they're doing, going through the streets. Pharaoh's right, uh, Joseph is riding through the streets. They're yelling, bow down. This guy is really important now. Pharaoh has lifted him up. He is what, what, what uh, in Egypt would be called the grand vizier. He is second in command. You need to bow down before him. It's this public proclamation of what Pharaoh is doing in Joseph's life. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent shall no one lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah I have no idea if that's the right way to say it. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land, went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the first name of the excuse me, called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful. In the land of my affliction. So, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. Joseph interprets the, interprets the dreams and says, Pharaoh, here's what I believe you should do. You should find a wise man, a man with uh, of discernment, uh, a man with discipline, and a man with all of these skills, and you need to appoint him and, and take care of this thing. Well, Pharaoh was no fool. And he rapidly saw 
a man with all the qualifications needed to do the job was standing right in front of him. So Joseph displays, I mean, just just by, uh, he, he displays incredible wisdom and discernment by providing the blueprint of a plan to deal with the, with the challenge. I mean, we did that fast. That's how quickly God gave him this plan. That in just a split second, he gave Pharaoh the answer. He said, this is what you need to do. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, uh, I will say this. That's a difficult phrase. And I think the NIV kind of brings this out a little bit to, to translate because it's possible that Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of the gods? And some scholars prefer that rendering because, you know, it's no, no question that Pharaoh uh, did not believe that there was only one God at that point in time. But I think, you know, others, and I, I follow along this line, others point out that Joseph had made it very plain to Pharaoh that the dream inter interpretation was coming from his God. And so, uh, you know, and, and frankly, either is possible because the word that's used there for God is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is actually, uh, every time it's used in Scripture, it's, it's actually plural. And so even when it's referring to the one true God, it's still a plural word, which also, when you get it in the New Testament, it's foreshadowing of the, of the Trinity there involved with that. But either one is possible. Neither one of them really changes the story. But the bottom line is this. Pharaoh may not have known much about this God that Joseph had mentioned, but he very clearly realized that there was a supernatural dimension to what had just happened. He said, I don't know what God he's talking about, but to get the interpretation like that and to have an answer to, to the problem just like that, there's this man Whoever this God is, he, he's got him. He knows this God. He hears from this God. Tell you what, isn't that something we would all like people to say? Well, the Pharaoh had made his decision. In spite of the fact that there was as yet no evidence that Joseph was right. There was, there was no evidence of a coming extended famine. Indeed, there was no evidence of even seven continuous years of plenty. Do you ever think about this? The Pharaoh appoints him immediately just on his word. There's no evidence that anything Joseph has said is correct. And yet Joseph, act, or excuse me, Pharaoh acted on it. That's an amazing thing to me. Uh, I mean, he could have easily just said, oh, sure. Well, I tell you what, let's just wait and see if what you say is true. But he decided right then and right there that there was enough evidence to trust Joseph. I, I think there are at least three factors uh, that, that to take into account when we consider the, the Pharaoh's rapid acceptance of Joseph's message. First of all, I think you, you look and you see Joseph's confidence and the authority with which he spoke expressing his message. There was no hesitation. There was no hemming or hawing. There was like, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that or I, but there was a, a, he spoke with authority. The second was, you, you, we also understand the Egyptian tendency to, uh, and their belief that their gods did indeed speak to them in their dreams. And so he was already expecting a message from, from his gods, but he didn't expect it from Joseph's God. And third, he also had the factor that the cupbearer had given testimony regarding Joseph's ability to interpret dreams that he had interpreted his and the baker's dream 
and, and everything had come true exactly as he said. So he has that as a little bit of a track record on him. And I think that's those things all put together gave Pharaoh the ability to say, hey, we got to act on this. Joseph, you're the, you're the man. You're the man I want for this. So Joseph was, would now be promoted in, in the kingdom. You know what? Life, I think if you've lived very long, you figured this out. Life can change with cataclysmic speed. On April 12, 1945, Harry S. Truman awoke as the vice president of the United States, which back in those days, the vice presidential office was more ceremonial. Pretty much all he did was just oversee the Senate proceedings every day. Uh, and, and frankly, from his reports, he was bored. Well, by eight o'clock on that evening, on April 12, 1945, Truman would be president after the death of Franklin Roosevelt. It's a big change. But the contrast for Joseph is even far greater than that of Truman. I mean, it's, it's absolutely astounding to, to really consider this one day in Joseph's life. In one day, he went from a trustee in Pharaoh's jail to an interpreter of Pharaoh's dreams to Pharaoh's grand vizier, or you might call a prime minister, the number two in charge, all in one day. Words really fail to describe the, the, the shift in his life in, in such a short amount of time. And, and you know what? There are some who might be tempted and some maybe in, their, in Joseph's day might have said, wow, he's an overnight success. Well, while his ascent into power was sudden, <laughs> we have to remember that he had proven himself faithful over 13 years in whatever sphere of service he was found. So he was certainly not, and, and you know what, most people today, most uh, when they talk about becoming an overnight success, most people are not overnight success. It, there, have been, there have been years poured into something, and, and that's the way it was with Joseph. It happened very suddenly, but it was not an overnight event because he had been in Egypt for 13 years, and it was 13 years of suffering. It was 13 years of being a slave and a prisoner and being forgotten and being put on a shelf and just nothing 13 years. And that was time now for Joseph to take up the task for which he had been trained all of those many years. Everywhere this incredible young man had been, he, he had responded to all situations, both good and bad, with grace and with ability and with wisdom. And now at long, long last, as Joseph is catapulted into the public arena, we begin to see the first evidences of the promised blessing that the seed of Abraham could and would bring to the world. He was going to be a blessing to the world. He was going to preserve life. He was going to preserve the nation of Israel. And more importantly, he was going to preserve his own family. And even more important than that, he was going to preserve the line of the seed project whereby our Savior would be born. But Pharaoh is so convinced of Joseph's authenticity and Joseph's capability that he invests him with virtually unlimited authority over the nation. Joseph is to be obeyed by every citizen in the kingdom without question. And his only superior was going to be Pharaoh himself sitting on the throne. And, and, and by the way, when you think about that, sometimes we, we don't think about the 
other people in the story that are past. But on a side note, you can't help but wonder what Potiphar and his wife, how they reacted to this monumental occasion, how they reacted to Joseph being uh, elevated far above them in power and social standing because they had to bow too. How, how, I mean, how did Joseph, how did Potiphar like that after being the master all this time? And now all of a sudden he's like, oh, I got to bow. And, and it certainly is no stretch of the imagination to think that Potiphar's wife was very, very nervous. Right? Because the way of the world is to utilize power to settle old scores. And that may have been what she expected. She may have been thinking to herself, man, one day that hammer is going to fall. Because she knew what she had done. But as we see, that's just not Joseph's way. He had learned so much from his past, watching his father Jacob reconcile with his brother and all the issues that came from seeking revenge and, and all of these things. And that wasn't his way. Now... God had vindicated Joseph at the highest possible level. Joseph had passed with flying colors the tests of coping with social ostracism and with suffering and with injustice. But you know what? Now he has to learn to cope with the exact opposite. He has to learn to cope with wealth and status and fame. And let me tell you something. For most people, that is far more dangerous than the suffering. It's the wealth, it's the success, it's the prosperity that tends to corrupt us to the point where we, we get proud of ourselves and pride is such a horrible, horrible, it, it, it's like a cancer that grows inside of us. But he went straight from the bottom to the top at a speed that, that would make almost anyone else giddy and disoriented. His promotion brought this immense prosperity, immense power. And also, as we read, it brought about his renaming by Pharaoh uh, as Zaphonath Pania, uh, which again, you know, you, you, you go a little bit further in the story. That's the name he's known by now in Egypt. So when Joseph's brothers come, they don't hear the, the name Joseph. They hear this name, which I'm not going to even try to say it again. Because <laughs> I've, I've said it twice, that's enough. <laughs> but, but the meaning of that name, it's, it's uncertain. You know, it's not real clear. But it could be something like God speaks, he lives, or revealer of hidden things would certainly be appropriate, you know, for Joseph. And his promotion also brought a marriage, again, arranged by Pharaoh, into a prominent Egyptian priestly family. He was married to a woman named Asenath, which her, that name means she who belongs to the goddess Night, or Nate, N-E-I-T. And she was the daughter of Potiphera. Now, it's very interesting, very close to Potiphar, but it's a different name, Potiphera. And Potiphera was the priest of On, which, uh, which, which, and that name, Potiphera, means he whom Ra, or the sun god, has given. And, and the center of the worship of Ra was, was a city called On. That's what it means. On there is a city, also known as Heliopolis, which is the city of the sun, and it lies 10 miles northeast of Cairo. So Joseph was now the son-in-law to a man who was presumably a high-ranking and influential pagan priest. And, and you know, obviously, some have brought this up, but the, the marriage raises obvious questions. 
The question is, was it right for Joseph as a believer, as a follower, as a believer in the God of Israel, was it right for him to marry an unbeliever from a foreign nation, a, a, a person who is actually uh, believed in pagan gods? Well, let me just say this and answer that. Joseph does not appear to have any choice in the matter. Uh, and, and also, we, there is no criticism of him in the text for having married her. In fact, uh, there, there is a Jewish tradition that says that she, because of Joseph, eventually became a believer in the God of Israel. So, uh, with his home base firmly established, Joseph threw himself into the task of administering the nation's agriculture with, with immense success. We're told that, and this is a quote, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. That's a lot of grain. And six years passed, and the next landmark, landmark in Joseph's life concerned his own seed. He started a family. Two children were born. The first one is named Manasseh. That's a, that's a name that's connected with the Hebrew verb to forget. Joseph explains that name. He said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now, Joseph had obviously not actually forgotten his toil and his pain, his hardship and his family. In fact, you can't forget something when you name your child, I'm forgetting, right? Because every time you say his name, it reminds you of what you're forgetting, right? So he had obviously not actually forgotten those things, but rather, what, here's what he's saying. He's saying, the Lord has now provided me with a new source of joy. He's given me a brand new life. It's like a fresh start, a new beginning. And, and, and he's giving, given this opportunity where I can just leave the past behind. You know, when Paul in the New Testament, when he talks about forgetting the past, um, see, we use the word forget to think we wipe it from our mind, but the word literally means not giving it any time or attention. And that's what Joseph is saying. He's saying, what has happened in the past is the past. I'm not going to waste my time thinking about that because now I have this son. Look what God has done. I was in prison. I was a slave. And now look at, look at my life. I have a son. I can leave that past behind. I don't need to worry about that anymore. The second son was named Ephraim, which means fruitfulness or, or twice fruitful. And Joseph now rejoiced, not in being able to forget the past, but now he's rejoicing over God's goodness to him. For he, he said, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the, 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 the fact that the two sons were given Hebrew names and subsequently took their place as tribal leaders in Israel on, on a par with Joseph's brothers may well be evidence, again, that Asenath had indeed become a believer in the God of Israel. And I want you to note that the two names record in, uh, the two phases of Joseph's life of suffering, the hardship of his father's house and the affliction of Egypt. They, they were never to be forgotten. And in fact, every time anybody ever says, the names of the tribes of Israel, it's a reminder of what Joseph went through. When, when they say Manasseh and Ephraim, it's a reminder of what Joseph went through and how he suffered, and yet he never was unfaithful to God. 
Well, the famine set in, as Joseph had foretold to Pharaoh seven years before. Uh, the fact that it did right on cue would have done much. And certainly anybody that doubted up to that point in time, this would certainly establish Joseph's authority because it was obvious he had gotten the interpretation right. Uh, and, and Joseph had, had, had certainly been through a whirlwind of change that happened suddenly, but, but only happened suddenly after many years of waiting and suffering. And we're going to pick up the story next week uh, as the famine begins. But to close out the, the study tonight, here's what I want to offer you. I want to, I want to give you two lessons, two things that we can learn from Joseph's life to apply to our own lives during times of waiting or suffering. Because here's what I know. I have had times of waiting and suffering in the past. And here's the other thing I know. I will have them again in the future. Anybody, anybody understand that? You, you got that? I, I have the gift of encouragement. Waiting and suffering are coming from you. So, <laughs> so, but here's the lessons we can learn from Joseph during those times. First, during the waiting period, trust God without panic. Anybody here tend to worry? Anybody here tend to panic? Learn from Joseph. Don't fret and worry over things you cannot control, things that other people do. Trust God without panic. Count on God to handle the cupbearers of your life, the people who forget you, the people who break their promises. Count on Him to handle the Potiphar's wives of your life, the people who lie about you, the people who falsely accuse you of horrible things, the people who persecute you out of spite. Count on Him to handle the jealous siblings that would do anything just to get rid of you. It's God's job to deal with the cupbearers of your past. It's your job to be the kind of servant He's designed you to be now. Be faithful during the waiting periods of life because we know God will not forget you and God will not forsake you. So be patient during the waiting period. Trust God without panic. Second, we'll close with this. one: When the reward comes, when the answer comes, when God does something, whatever it is, when the reward comes, thank God without pride. Don't think that somehow you have done something. Only God can bring you through and out of the dungeon. Only God can reward you for your faithfulness. And if He has, if you're walking in that moment, if you receive the answer, if you receive the reward, be grateful, not prideful. Sure, there will always be some who will find a reason to say that you're not deserving. You know, there's always going to be somebody that's, that's going to say, oh, they're not qualified. That, they, they don't deserve that reward. They don't deserve that promotion. I don't know why God blesses them like that. But in that moment, you just remember with humility that it was God who put you there. It was God who had kept you during the time of waiting and suffering. And it is also God who brings you to that place of reward. So he gets the glory. I take no pride in that. I just humbly thank him. That's, I think, some powerful lessons we can learn from Joseph. Let's pray together. Father, as we 
look at Joseph's life. There's so many things that we can look at. And, and Lord, obviously one of these big themes is waiting on you to fulfill your plan and to not try to manipulate things, not try to make things happen, but to just wait patiently, even in the darkest times of our life, knowing that you are working out a plan. And so God, I just pray that you'd help us in those times of waiting, in those times of suffering, those times of dealing with these issues of life, that God, you would help us. Lord, the, one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. So God, work that in us. Help us, God, to, to learn from your Spirit, to have the strength to persevere, to learn from the example of Jesus who, who endured the cross and suffered its shame. God, I pray that you would help us to be those kind of people so that no matter what happens, we never falter. We are never unfaithful. We just keep our eyes on you and we, we, we just keep, keep trusting you and let you work it all out. And Lord God, we know that it doesn't always happen the same way as it did for Joseph. Sometimes the vindication doesn't come in this life. And God, if that's for any situation, if that's what your plan is for us, help us to be okay with that. Because we know, God, that one day we will stand before you and because of the blood of Jesus, we will be vindicated. And Lord, we're trusting and looking forward to that moment when you will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let that be a rock that we build our life upon, a, an anchor that we, we hold on to, knowing that you're with us, knowing that you will see us through. And ultimately, in the end, we get you. We give you praise in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.